Uh, I wish I just keep on kept on going, but I didn't. I turned around, picked him up, and uh, that's when that's when it the nightmare became a reality. Once it happened the first time, it just seemed like uh, it had control of my life from there on end. I uh, it uh, was a major part of my thinking from then on. Was it the killing that excited you? Or is it what happened after the killing? No, the, the killing was just a means to an end. That, that was the least set, uh, satisfactory part. I didn't enjoy doing that. Mm -hmm. That's why I tried to uh, create uh, living zombies with uh, uretic acid in the, in the drill. Welcome back to Story Crime. I'm Erica. And I'm Rachel. And this is part two of the Jeffrey Dahmer trilogy. Oh, <laughs> trilogy. <laughs> That's right. This is going to be three parts, and I apologize in advance for that, but there's just so much we have to cover. And if I put it all into just two episodes, it would be so long for episode two. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But don't worry, you're going to get the third part on Sunday. So you won't have to wait that long for nice. part three. Yeah. Perfect. So, so how are you feeling after episode one, Rachel? Are you ready to dive in? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was a lot. <laughs> and I know this episode's going to be even more. So I come with a drink, a very stiff drink. I also have a uh, drink. It's just a glass of wine, though. Just a small glass because I have to work in the morning. But definitely need it. I've been having dreams about Jeffrey Dahmer. No, oh, no. <laughs> I have been... He just shows up randomly in the dreams. He is just there. And I'm like, hey, it's Jeffrey Dahmer. And then I'm like, I wake up and I'm like, what the hell's happening? Hmm, that happened. <laughs> what if he's visiting you? Ew, gross. It's unsettling and I don't like that. Please don't Go visit Go away, me. Jeff. Yeah, we don't like you. Yeah, so I don't have any anything to really talk about is, except for Jeffrey Dahmer today. So <laughs> Okay, perfect. Let's get right into it. Let's jump on in. So last week, we kind of left you with Jeff getting out of jail. So he had gone to jail for the sexual assault of a minor in the neighborhood he was living in and had moved back in with grandma briefly and then went to jail. He was on the work release program, had a head in his locker, that whole business. Mm -hmm. You know, just regular stuff. Normal stuff. Yeah. So... After Jeff got out of jail, like we said, he could not move back in with his grandma. So he moved to an area of Milwaukee on the north side, which is a predominantly not white neighborhood. So again, was sticking out like a sore thumb where he lived. Mm -hmm. And he lived in a place called the Oxford Street Apartments, which is pretty infamous now considering, I don't even think it's there anymore, but after this case, it was pretty infamous because this was where the bulk of his murders took place. Oh. And even though Jeffrey really stood out in that neighborhood, uh, he was actually described by neighbors as being qu the quiet white guy that lived in apartment 213. Oh, so yeah. his walls must have been pretty thick. <laughs> yeah, thick for noise, not for other things. Oh, that oh. we will talk about later. Okay. Another <laughs> tingling of the senses later. But yeah, like he mostly flew under the radar there and he never partied. It was never seen bringing guests up to his apartment, mostly because he used the back entrance where not a lot of people were. So he knew? Yeah. You know, like he was described as being, I think what we would all describe as being the ideal neighbor. Like nobody had any complaints. He was friendly. If somebody was outside having a barbecue, he'd talk to them. You know, like, yeah, that kind pretty, of stuff. Pretty, pretty basic neighbor. So when Jeff settled into his new apartment, he decided to christen the place by, of course, finally bringing home the head that was in his locker right. at work and also going on the hunt for his next victim. Of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Immediately had to go out and do that. So on May 14th, 1990, Jeffrey met a man named Raymond Smith. He was a 32-year-old sex worker, and he met him at Club 19, which I think we talked about before. That was, like, Jeffrey's favorite club to go to. So he offered him $50 for sex, and when the two of them returned to his apartment complex, he drugged Raymond with seven sleeping pills. Holy, that's a lot. He then murdered Raymond before performing sex acts on his body. 
Um, and Jeffrey would take Polaroids of... Did you say before performing sex acts? Yeah, so he would pay him for sex and probably had some sort of consensual sex with Raymond, which is the same with a lot of his victims. But after he strangled, that was when he really preferred to sort of engage in these experiences. So uh, Jeffrey would take Polaroids of Smith's lifeless body in very suggestive positions. And you can... (laughs) find some of these Polaroids um, of several different victims online. I wouldn't suggest looking at them. I've seen them. Oh. Immediately looked at puppies after. (laughs) Clear the mind. Clear the mind. Yeah. So he would later dismember Raymond in his bathtub and dissolve the remains in a barrel of acid. Breaking bad stuff. Yeah. Except for his head, though, which Mm. he preserved and stored in a cabinet next to Anthony Sears' head. So Anthony Sears was the victim that we, that he had his head in the box at work while he was Mm -hmm. in jail. Mm -hmm. So he would then display some of the other bones from Raymond around his apartment just as, you know, cash decoration. You know, just to enhance the feng shui of his apartment. I have Doctor Strange stuff in my living room. <laughs> I mean, Doctor Strange paraphernalia, skulls and bones. I, you know. <laughs> to each their own, I guess. Fucking Jeffrey, you're gross. So, about a week later, Jeffrey would find his next potential victim. Now, this man's name is not known because once the pair returned to Jeffrey's apartment, Jeffrey accidentally consumed the drug, the drug drink that he had prepared for this man. Oh, Himself. Classic. And uh, he passed out. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he never got a chance. And you would think that would be like number one on a date rapist list of just make sure you know. Like, you know how like when you go to Things restaurants. not to do. You go to restaurants and you order, you order a Coke and your friend orders a Diet Coke. Mm-hmm. You know the two are different because the waitress she puts two straws in one, one straw in the other. Whatever. Come on, Jeffrey. This is server 101. Come on, Jeffrey. I mean, I'm glad you made the mistake, but holy shit, man. Like, get it together. Amateur but, hour. But don't get it together because you're Don't get it together. Stop getting it together. Yeah, stop getting it together. <laughs> so Jeffrey awoke the next morning to find some of his personal belongings had been stolen. <laughs> but otherwise, he was left unharmed, unfortunately. This experience did make Dahmer more cautious, though, and he would go on to install, like, an intricate security system in his apartment, not only to ensure that no one would get in, but also that no one could leave. So there was, like, a series of cameras and alarms and different weird shit going on. And in the 80s, I I don't know. Is it Bells? Yeah, what movie is this? Psycho? American Psycho? Which one is the one where he's crazy? The, not the Bates one. Oh, American Psycho. If it's not the Bates, I would say they're both crazy. Yeah. So, the one where yeah, the man, uh, Christian... Christian Bale. Yeah, yeah. That would be American Psycho. And did he have that? I haven't seen that whole movie. This is totally giving me American Psycho vibes. Well, I'm pretty sure American Psycho was based on, like, a multitude of all of these people. Like, a, mm. a combination of all of these really big serial killers from the time. So... Okay. Um, hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer was psycho. And he definitely... I don't know what kind of security systems, like, elaborate security systems they had in the 80s. But, like, he had everything. And I don't even know where he's getting this money from. From the chocolate factory? It must be a good paying job. Just... I mean, must be, yeah. So he's quoted in an interview as saying about the security systems that we just talked about. I bought security systems, installed them myself in the apartment. I had a video camera in the corner of the room, installed locks in the doors, sirens and stuff in case anyone broke into the apartment. On June 14th, Jeff would meet up with a man named Eddie Smith. And Eddie was actually a friend of Jeffrey's who had actually spent some time at the Oxford Street apartment on a few prior occasions to Mm. this particular evening. Mm. And I think the fact that Jeff was willing to take someone home that he knew that he knew really shows like how bold he was getting in his actions, right? Like he was starting to feel untouchable in some ways. Uh, So friends and family of Eddie describe him as being kind, outgoing, the life of the party. He was easy to get along with and well-loved by everyone who knew him. Jeffrey would end up drugging his friend and 
strangling him to death and continuing mm. on with his disgusting abuses of Eddie's body, which we've already discussed. I don't think I need to go into it every time. No. We know what Jeffrey's about at this point. Now, Jeffrey would go on to experiment in new ways with Eddie's remains, placing some of them in the freezer to dry them out. And he would store the body for several months before transferring the frozen skull directly from the freezer into the oven and oh no if you've ever transferred like a frozen anything into a hot oven you might know it could cause it to burst or oh no so that is what happened to eddie's skull unfortunately god poor eddie yeah jeff was disappointed with this saying in an interview I felt rotten about Smith's murder as I was unable to retain any parts of his body. So because there was no trophy, it's like, I really didn't feel good about that one. <laughs> exactly. Like, he's Ugh. fucking disgusting. I can't move. Get out of my dreams, Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't want to see you. You're gross. Out of her <laughs> dreams. He was, however, pleased with the fact that he was able to get at least, the very least, some Polaroids of this murder. So, yeah. So he was another one that those Polaroids are out there. Please don't look for them. They're disgusting. At this time, Jeffrey needed more and more stimulation to get the thrill from his acts that he had gotten at the beginning stages of his murder spree. And he's quoted quoted as saying, it took more and more deviant behavior to satisfy my urges. Okay, so just to recap from last week, since Jeff preferred his his sexual partners to be entirely immobile during sex, uh, he actually started out by drugging and raping them, if you remember. Mm -hmm. And they were passed out, obviously, so they weren't moving. And when that no longer satisfied his desires, he would go on to kill them and and rape their corpses. Gross. Of course, Jeff would continue to escalate in his disturbing behaviors, playing with their bodies and doing experiments on them. He would also start to focus on specific body parts, mainly being their arms and calf muscles. Loved them. What? Loved them. So he would masturbate with these body parts, and when he was in... Okay. Sorry. Take a drink. Everybody (laughs) take a drink. (laughs) So, yeah, so he would masturbate with these body parts, and when he was no longer getting the same satisfaction, he started to partake in yet an even more disturbing act. Uh Uh-uh. So, I am going to play a clip for you, Rachel. Oh. Of exactly what that act was. Oh, God. Um, And this is going to be in Jeffrey Dahmer's own words. So, okay. Here we go. Okay. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Mm. Eating of the heart Mm-mm. and uh, the arm muscle. No. It was a way of uh, making me feel that uh, they were a part of me. No. Oh, God, no. No. At first, it was just curiosity, and then it became compulsive. Mm-mm. Curiosity? No, ma'am. Killed the cat, Rachel. Killed the cat. (laughs) Why? Oh, yeah. So he started branching out into cannibalism. I do not enjoy that. And he's also quoted after after that. It said it made them feel like they were a part of me, and it gave me se- sexual satisfaction to do that. Jeffrey's forgetting some things here. So I'm not a scientist or a biologist or a doctor. Mm-hmm. But when I eat things, I know what happens to them after. Yep. <laughs> we're dropping yep. anchor. We're dragging chain. <laughs> oh, God. Yep. <laughs> so the fact that he thought that that would keep them with him, make them a part of him. I'm not sure if he was paying attention in high school. but Like, it's very basic. I think, like, even kids as young as the kindergarten age that I teach know what happens to your food after you eat it. Yeah. Like, the basics, right? The digestive system, where it goes. Yeah. Apparently, Jeffrey didn't get that. He didn't understand that part of kindergarten. So, (sighs) we're not going to focus on that too, too much. We're going to move on. Okay. It will come up again later throughout this, but I'm not going to focus on it because it is pretty gross. So in September of 1990, Jeff would claim his next victim. So 
Jeff met 22-year-old Ernest Miller on the streets of Milwaukee. This murder would kind of veer off of Jeffrey's usual MO when he realized he did not have enough sleeping pills to render this man unconscious. Oh, no. Because of this, Jeffrey kind of had to think on his feet, and instead of properly drugging Ernest and strangling him as he did with the other victims, he snuck up behind his unsuspecting victim and slit his throat. Oh, I much prefer it when they're passed out. Yeah. Less less feeling involved, I feel. Yeah. And Jeffrey didn't like this either because, like we said before, he really didn't enjoy that process of killing people. That wasn't what got him off. Mm-hmm. He liked everything that came out after. And he never did this again. And I think part of it was the mess that it created yeah. for him. He, there was a lot more cleaning, a lot more everything else involved in that process that he wasn't prepared for. And also, like, it just wasn't. That just wasn't for him. He liked the other parts of it. So mm-hmm. he did, however, spend a lot of time with Miller's body after murdering him, telling investigators that he found uh, him particularly attractive. Oh, come on. So Jeffrey would end up keeping Miller's biceps and heart, which he later ate. <sighs> so no eating during this episode, guys. No, I don't even want dinner it. now. Um, he also kept and painted Ernest's skull. So sometimes Jeffrey would paint the skulls of his victims after preserving them. How they like artwork? Yeah, and he thought that this was a way to kind of cover up the murder because then people might think that it's um, this isn't a skull. This is just a painting I got at the flea market or like a Halloween decoration or whatever, right? So oh, fuck. <laughs> I mean, it, I could see that working. And if I walked into somebody's apartment and they had skulls lined up and they were all different colors, I would never think that those were human skulls. I would think that they purchased those. Well, to be fair, I hope you're not hanging out with anyone that would have human skulls in their apartment. I mean, does anyone think that? I I guess not. That is for all, true. For all you know, <laughs> you could have a coworker that has somebody's head in their desk and you have no idea. Oh, mm. Do you think the people at the chocolate factory knew that he had a skull or somebody's head in there in his locker? I mean, I hope not. Because then, you know, they should have called the police before. Yeah, it's true. But you never know. This is what I've learned from this case. You really just never know. People are disgusting. Mm-hmm. So on September 24th, 1990, after getting drunk and heading to the Grand Avenue Mall in Milwaukee, Jeffrey met a 24-year-old man named David Thomas. Now... David was not Jeff's usual victim type. He wasn't a homosexual, which didn't really matter to Jeff anyways. And he was the parent to a very young child. Oh. Yeah. So Thomas was having trouble making money in legitimate ways to support his kids. So when Jeff offered him money to pose for photos, he readily accepted that offer. Mm. Jeffrey enacted his usual plan on Thomas, except this time he realized that he wasn't attracted to David at all. Oh, yeah. did he let him go then? No. He oh, first, come on. So he at first did consider letting David go, but afraid of getting reported to the police for drugging him, because he had already drugged him by the time he realized he didn't had no sexual attraction to him. Right. You're not giving me a boner here, bud. Yeah. He ended up changing his mind, and he, he, right. he of course, had to kill Thomas, or David Thomas. Uh-huh. And he ended up murdering David and discarding a all his body parts, only taking photos of the process, which, of course, so he decided after this murder that it was way too risky to murder just any man that he met on the street and that he would only go for the ones that he found the most attractive from there on in. Oh, so now he's going to be selective. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, because I think up until this point, it was all about just like satiating that need to or Mm -hmm. satisfying that need to commit murder and have these compliant sex slaves or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So Jeffrey considered the murder of David Thomas a total waste as he was unable to derive any sexual satisfaction from the whole thing, which is barf to me. Yeah. So barf. And he talks about it in interviews and it's fucking disgusting. It's like, it's not a waste. I killed him for nothing. Yeah. And it's not a waste because it's a waste of a a good life that could have went on to do great things and raise his kid and have this wonderful life. No, it's a waste because he could not get sexually satisfied from this man that he wasn't attracted to. Ugh. I hate that. I hate you. So after Thomas's murder, Jeffrey entered a bit of a cooling down period. Mm. And this wasn't because he wanted to. 
But because now he was being so selective, it seemed that there weren't any men that matched exactly what he was looking for in Milwaukee. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So Bunch of fives in Milwaukee. Yeah, I guess so. He would spend his downtime experimenting with, like, the multitude of body parts that he kept in his apartment. Designing, he would also design an altar to memorialize his victims, which I'm going to find a picture of that to send to you to put on Instagram because it's fucking so weird. Ew. And he would also, like, just get drunk and watch his most favorite movie of all time. Himself? No. (laughs) The Exorcist? Not one. Not two. The Exorcist 3. Have you seen it? No, but no one watches The Exorcist 3. Who watches The Exorcist 3 anyways? I don't even know. I have it. I own it. I didn't even know there was a third Exorcist. There is. I've seen it. I don't remember it. It's it's pretty uh, forgettable, but... And probably also regrettable, which I almost said. (laughs) uh, What I do remember about the movie is that it wasn't great. But Jeff loved it. Jeff loved it. In a 1993 interview with Nancy Glass, Jeffrey would say of the film The Exorcist 3, I felt so helplessly evil and perverted that I actually derived some sort of pleasure from watching that film. Oh, come on. Like, I enjoy a good movie. Sometimes movies, they, you know, when you're feeling sad, you watch a happy movie or a sad one just to get those tears out. I don't understand. The Exorcist 3 sucks. (laughs) <laughs> regardless either, no matter what you're feeling the exorcist 3 sucks and you'll leave that movie feeling really stupid after anyway <laughs> now if you're like me you might be wondering at this point couldn't anyone smell what was going on in apartment 213 yes thank you those so this, thick walls again this is why i said it wasn't noise that was the problem here mm-hmm. there was another problem to the senses and uh Neighbors were becoming concerned with the strange smells emanating from his unit, but when the landlord questioned him, Jeffrey told him that his refrigerator had broken and there was rotting meat inside. I mean, he's not wrong, but gross. (laughs) I I wrote in my notes, I'll say. (laughs) On another occasion, when the landlord stopped by, he actually explained the smells away, saying that all of the fish in his very large... So he had this really, like, huge fish tank in his apartment, like, massive. Okay? Okay. And he told the landlord that all the fish had died. That's what everyone was smelling. I don't know. I've never... I'm not a fish person. We've had one fish, who you know of. Yeah. His name is Uncle Bob. He lived for 19 years. He was amazing. When he died, we didn't know because we couldn't smell him. So I'm pulling bullshit <laughs> on Jeffrey Dahmer right now. Right. That is a bullshit story, Jeffrey. We don't know how long Uncle Bob was in that tank for. Just saying. <laughs> so he was told to get rid of the fish and everyone was done. Just kidding. We did know. It was immediate. We noticed <laughs> Uncle Bob was gone. My dad called all of us in tears. <laughs> I was just just another reason to call bullshit on Jeffrey Dahmer and his lies. In February of 1991, Jeffrey would meet a 19-year-old man named Curtis Stroder, and he was on the street outside of Jeffrey's apartment building. Okay. Now, Curtis was an aspiring model who had recently been terminated from his job as a nursing aide. Hmm. And when he met Jeff, he was feeling down on his luck. So when Jeffrey offered him $50 to pose new for photos, he accepted. Without of course, question. yeah. Once upstairs in Jeff's apartment, he proceeded to rape and murder Curtis. This would be one of the only victims that Jeff wouldn't drug before murdering. Oh, no. I don't like that. I like it better when they can't feel anything. Yeah. So he will keep Curtis's head, hands, and genitals in the refrigerator after dismembering his body. Mm. While killing and and feasting on his victims satisfied Jeffrey for a time. Mm Mm-hmm. He was still trying to come up with ways to get himself a permanent, compliant sex slave. But how? He likes them dead. Well, he likes them motionless and he likes them compliant. He wants to be able to control them and control every part of what they do. Can we just go back to the mannequin, Jeffrey? Like, that seemed to be really working. Now that you have your own place, Grandma won't judge you. Get your mannequin. I don't even think Grandma judged him. I think she was just like, eh, maybe no mannequin in my house. Like, you can you can move out and have a mannequin. But, like, let's just not have a mannequin in my house. Fair I enough, know. Grandma. I wish that, that that's, yeah, where I was going here. But, okay. you know. Yeah, so 
His goal was to always find the best looking man that there was and just keep him forever. And so this is when he came up with his plan to try to create living zombies that he could control and do with what he pleased. Stop it right now. I will not I stop. want to know what the fuck you mean. <laughs> what in the hell is a living zombie? And no, ma'am. No, I can't. Uh, uh, living zombies don't exist because they are fictional. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> No, I just... Mm, okay, continue if you must. <laughs> On April 7th of 1991, Jeffrey met another 19-year-old man named Errol Lindsay outside of a bookstore while the man was out running errands. So, Errol Lindsay was also not a homosexual. And I know that doesn't seem important, but because Jeffrey was a homosexual, I think this really kind of illustrates how he didn't really care. He didn't care about race. He didn't care about ethnicity. He didn't care about sexual orientation. It was just about finding the best looking man and satisfying all of his really strange desires. So regardless, Jeffrey was able to convince the young man, Errol Lindsay, to go back to his apartment with him. And like the others that came before him, Jeff offered him the customary $50 for photos, and the two headed back to apartment 213. For this victim, Jeffrey had another plan in mind. After drugging Lindsay, instead of murdering him, he would use a power drill to make a small hole in the side of his skull. Sorry, what? He he was still alive during this? Yes, so he was drugged, and he was out of it. I do not like that. So think lobotomy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. He would then pour muriatic acid into the hole with the hopes of creating a submissive zombie-like companion for himself. Yeah. What? (sighs) So after the acid was poured into his skull, Arrow suddenly awoke. What? Yeah. He woke up. He stood straight up and he said, I have a headache. What time is it? I have a headache. Understatement of the damn year. He then collapsed on the floor and he died shortly after, like Mm. almost immediately. So Jeffrey's first attempt at creating a sex zombie had failed miserably. And he ended up strangling Lindsay for good measure, had sex with his body and then dismembered him. Mm. So he tried to deserve he tried to preserve some of the body parts by submerging them in a brine of salt and water, but the process failed and he ended up disposing of the remains in a barrel of acid, keeping the skull as yet another souvenir. Oh, that is absolutely disgusting and way to die. I cannot imagine. After reading all of this, I am like most disturbed by the fact that he tried to pickle him. <laughs> Look, I just... Yep. yep. I've read so many things about this that not a lot shocks me about it, but he tried to pickle him, and that was new to me. Just trying new recipes, you know? And we didn't really... Is he eating these bodies raw? I don't know. They never actually specified... So maybe he's testing out his culinary skills as well. He very well could be. Now, there is another cannibal that we will cover one day that Mm. talks about the process of cooking very fresh human meat. Gross. And what happens, and I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it it wasn't a good time for them. So, (laughs) but that's for another day, everyone. (laughs) Can't wait. Yeah. So Jeffrey's next murder would mark just how depraved of any sort of human empathy he truly was. Mm-hmm. On May 24th, 1991, Jeffrey met Tony Hughes at a club in Milwaukee. Tony was in town visiting relatives after relocating to Madison the year before. Mm-hmm. And Tony was a huge departure from Jeff's usual victim type as he was both deaf and mute. Oh, yeah. Interesting choice. Yeah. So the two would briefly communicate at a club by passing notes back and forth before heading back to Jeffrey's apartment. He, of course, then drugged Tony 
before drilling a hole into his skull as well and injecting it with acid. He didn't learn the first time that that didn't work? He was going to keep trying. He was the little engine that could. I don't like that at all. I know. I wish he was the little engine that couldn't, but... The little engine that didn't? That, yeah. Yes. So Jeffrey (laughs) would wait in anticipation for Tony to wake up as a subservient zombie that he could keep as his slave. But this would never happen. Like, I'm just wondering the thought process of like, okay, let me drill his skull and pour acid on his brain. He'll totally be a subservient zombie. Like, obviously. Like, but it also shows... And, like, I don't want to give too many spoilers about later on, but his, like, presence of mind, because when I use a drill, like, Rob has to help me because I will go all in. Like, I have no (laughs) spatial awareness when I'm using power tools, and, like, I will drill through anything. So the fact that he has that level of control with these tools to... You would think that, like, the human head, the, the, between the skin, the skull, and, and the brain. The to, cranium. Yeah, to, like, not drill that hole and immediately kill his True. victim. Right? Yeah. To just go through that delicate piece of bone there. And, uh, I don't know. It, like I said, I don't want to serve it for later. Or, uh, I don't want to spoil it for later, but, yeah. Tony would die shortly after the acid was injected into his skull. Mm-hmm. For some reason, Jeffrey would not dispose of Tony's body right away like he usually did with his victims, instead keeping him on his bed for several days before dismembering and dissolving his body parts in acid. Ew. Yeah. So the next murder that Jeff would go on to commit is probably one of the saddest and most frustrating murders of this whole case. Oh, okay. So on May 27th, 1991, just three days after murdering Tony Hughes, Jeffrey would meet a 14-year-old boy by the name of Conrad Synthesymphone. I I apologize if I'm not saying that correctly. It's... I've been practicing it. I'm not sure how to say it. Right. But he's young. He's young. He's 14 years old. Mm. And he spotted him at the Grand Avenue Mall, which was one of his usual hunting grounds. If he wasn't at at one of the the nightclubs, this was where he would kind of stalk his victims. Right. So Conorak was a Laotian boy who spoke very little English. And when Jeff first approached him with the usual $50 for nude photos, he was hesitant to accept the offer. Nonetheless... Jeff was able to persuade the boy, and the two headed back to Jeffrey's apartment. Mm. Now, little did Conorak know that when they arrived at the apartment, the body of Jeff's last victim, Tony Tony Hughes, was Uh still laying in Jeff's bed in the next room. (gasps) Oh, Jesus. Again, if you guys are researching this case, you may find polaroids of Conorak. They're not... He's not nude in any of them, so it's still... But nevertheless, it's still pretty shocking so just be aware that if you are researching this those might pop up Mm -hmm. but yeah i wouldn't suggest going looking for them because it's very sad Mm -hmm. so after the photo shoot ended jeffrey set out enacting his usual routine and drugged the young boy's drink once conorak was passed out from the drugs jeffrey proceeded to once again experiment with creating a human zombie give it up yeah Surprisingly, after injecting the boy's skull with acid, Conorak woke up and began to walk around. What? Yeah. Jeffrey was excited at the idea that his his experiment may have worked and walked the boy, who was groggy and disoriented from the drugs as well as the acid that was in his brain, mm-hmm. into his bedroom. So Conorak's other body was. Yeah, so he was actually so out of it that it's likely that he didn't even notice that Tony Hughes' corpse was laying in the bed. Oh, God. Yeah. So, Conorak ended up passing out again, and Jeff spent time lying with him on the floor, drinking beer, and contemplating what his next move would be. And at some point during all of this, Jeffrey had run out of beer and thought it was a really good idea to just leave a passed-out kid on the floor next to a dead body while he popped out to the store to grab some more alcohol. Oh, my God. Beer run. Be right back. Yeah. Now, as hard as it is to believe, 
Conrad would wake up again while Jeffrey was at, a, at the store, and even in his debilitated state, naked and disoriented, the 14-year-old managed to escape from apartment 213 what? and make his way down the street. What? Yeah. With a hole and acid in his head. Yep. Holy shit. The will to live. Luckily for him, there were these three badass women that happened to spot him walking and quickly realized something was very wrong. Oh, good. Cheers to them. These women's names were Sandra Smith, Tina Spivy, and Nicole Childress. I love them already. Yeah. So, Conorak was naked, bruised, and bleeding from his anus, and... Mm. Childress quickly called 911 to report what they had just found. Mm-hmm. While, the woman were, while the women were tending to this battered child, Jeffrey appeared down the street while <laughs> the no. commotion was unfolding. No. He quickly ran to the group and insisted to them that Conorak was his boyfriend. No. And that the two had gotten in a fight and that the boy was just drunk out of his mind. <gasps> also adding that this happens all the time between no. them. No. Tell me those women did not... Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Those women... Yeah, those women did not buy his bullshit and refused to let Jeffrey take the boy back to his apartment before police arrived. I love me a good, solid, like, stick-together woman story. Mm. Yes. Yes. So soon, officers John Balserzak... Balserzak? I don't know. Anyways, this guy's an a-hole, so I don't care. Balzak? Yeah. (laughs) Balsack. Yeah, I don't know how to say his name, but whatever, he's an asshole. And Joseph T. Gibrish, as well as Richard Porcupine. Porcu- I don't know how to say any of these last names. I'm sorry. Are they dicks? Uh, they're all dicks. Okay, that doesn't matter. So who cares? Arrived at the scene, followed by an ambulance. Jeffrey told the same story to the police as he did the three women who were still insisting that they not let Jeffrey take this boy with that with him. Tell me that the police... Oh, you're going to make me mad. So, the ambulance personnel also believed that Conorak needed medical attention. The police officer soon sent the ambulance away. <sighs> so, though Conorak had been in the country for 10 years and spoke some English, it wasn't great, but he spoke it. Mm-hmm. In his drugged and brain injured state, he was unable to communicate the situation that he was in to authorities and to the three women. Mm-hmm. And Dahmer convinced the police that the boy was his 19 year old lover against the protests of these three, three women that had, were on the street. Stop. Now, it. one detail that I should note is that. Conorak was from the neighborhood, so these three women had actually seen him earlier digging for worms, collecting earthworms on the sidewalk. Uh huh. And I just want to show you, I showed you that picture earlier of yeah. that boy that you yeah. said you thought was about 12. Yeah. This is who we're talking about. Okay. <gasps> and the police thought he was 19. I can't even. Smith recognized the boy from the neighborhood, and the three women reiterated their concerns, but were told to shut the hell up by the police (gasps) officers. What? They were convinced that the incident was just a domestic dispute. Oh, my fucking God. (gasps) I'm so mad. The three officers returned Conorak to Dahmer's apartment. Mm, Just hand-delivered the poor child. Oh, my God. I thought they were all fired. Now, Balser Zach said that he smelled nothing unusual, but Officer Gabrish said he did detect a foul odor, likely emanating from the body of Tony Hughes, who had been decomposing in Dahmer's bedroom for three days. Unfucking real Balsack and Gibberish, you need to get fucking fired. <laughs> get fucked. Still, oh, they, they didn't find it prudent to search any further into the apartment, barely even stretching their necks to take a look around the place. Fucking dickheads. Now, Jeff did show the officers the nude Polaroids he had taken of Conorak earlier that night to try and prove his case even further, so he basically showed police child porn. Look, uh, yeah, look, officers. Look, look at, at my, my chi- child porn. No yeah. big deal. NBD. As the child is right here in front of you. Yeah. The officers listed the incident as a domestic squabble between homosexuals and did not otherwise act. I hate them so much. Before leaving, the officer said, take good care of him. Stop it. I hope that those pieces of shit feel so bad 
Within an hour after they left, Dahmer murdered Conrad, performed oral sex on his corpse, and dismembered him. Mm. Yeah. So I'm just going to play a couple of recordings right now for oh, you. Okay, I want to play okay. you the 911 call that came in from the three badass bitches. Badasses. I love them already. Badass. I, I actually have watched a lot of interviews with them um, since this all of, like, after Jeffrey's arrest and all of that. And they are Did they give badass. a big fat, I told you fucking so? Oh, yeah. And... Oh. Just wait. I'm going to play you. Just There's three recordings here I want to play you, and okay. let me get those ready. Okay, so the first recording I'm going to play you is the 911 call that they initially made about Conorak when they found him on the street. Okay. Okay, hi. Um, this, um, I'm on 25th Estate, and this is young man. He is butt naked. He has been beaten up. He is very bruised up. He can't stand. He's study for a lot. He has huge butt naked. He has no clothes on. He was really hurt. And I, you know, I ain't got no cord on him. I just seen him. And he needs some help. Where is he at? On 25th Estate, the corner of 25th Estate. So that's basically just telling the police officers this is where we are, but you can clearly hear their concern about mm-hmm. what's going on. And they, you know, like he's... Well, and they paint a pretty concerning picture. He's bruised up. He has no clothes on. He's delusional or delirious. He's, like he's, he's bleeding. He doesn't know what's happening. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I'm going to play you a couple of um, clips from after this, after he was returned. So... So the first clip is after he's dro- immediately after he's returned to Jeffrey's apartment and what the police said. And I just want you to listen really closely to what's is, being said. This is on the this. police? This is the police. I'm going to get angry, aren't I? Well, I just want to see if you can hear what I'm hearing. So okay. just listen. The intoxicated Asian naked male <laughs> was returned to Tell me that those motherfuckers are not laughing in the background. They're laughing. And one of the things that they say after, and I could not find a recording of this, and I don't know if it's because it's been, like, obliterated over time. Yeah, destroyed. But one of the things that they go on to say, according to some sources, is that he's been returned to his boyfriend. It was a gay thing and um we're now heading back to the station to be deloused and laughing you do hear laughing in there i want justice for that child yes so this is um the next recording i'm gonna show you is or play for you is a little while after and anyways just just so you can hear these badass bitches again okay the intoxicated uh, boyfriend of another boyfriend. How old was this child? It wasn't a child, it was an adult. He wasn't a child, he was an adult. Uh, wait. You saw the picture. Yeah. Was that a child or, a, or an adult? I, I thought he was 12 years old at the very most. Yeah. He was 14, so even... <laughs> you're proving the case even more. This was not a 19-year-old adult. No. No way and no how. These police officers can get fucked. Oh, they, they get sh- more than fucked. They should have been the ones ending up in a barrel in Jeffrey Dahmer. No, I'm just kidding. Shouldn't, but <laughs> this is how angry I was about this. When it comes to the abuse and murder of a child... That the police hand back over to the... Murderer and abuser. And the people that are supposed to be in charge of protecting that child. When you had three adults saying, no, do not release this child. There is something wrong. And I'm sorry, you're a police officer. You know what dead body smells like. And when you walk into an apartment that has a dead body decomposing in it, you know that smell. And they turn the other way. And I am telling you, it is the 80s in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. It's because they, are they were homophobic. Homophobic. Mm, so angry. So as you could hear, the officers were cracking jokes about the whole situation, even saying that they had reunited these gay lovers. And oh, well, fuck off. After Dahmer, after Dahmer's arrest, the officers were placed on probation before being Good. fired 
before being fired from the force for their lack of care provided to a child who was in grave danger and could have been saved had it not been for their incompetence. And they should have been put in jail, but obviously we know how that goes. Here's something that's going to piss you off even more. Oh, great. Let me take a drink. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Had these officers at the very least, the very least, checked Dahmer's ID that night, they would have seen that he was a convicted child sex offender who had spent time in jail for the prior molestation of another 13-year-old boy just years earlier, if you remember. Yeah. Who, as it would coincidentally turn out, was Connor Axe's older brother. Stop it. Now, My mind just got blown. Are this- you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. And this was not something that Jeffrey planned because it's likely in Jeffrey was a raging alcoholic. He likely did not know any of his victims names or their like their last names or their families or anything like that prior to luring, luring them to his apartment and drugging them and, and doing what he did. Uh-huh. Um, this was I'm, a full on coincidence that Connor, I'm baffled. Yeah. The fate of that family is so heartbreaking. Yes. Oh. So sad. Oh, okay. Whew. So the city of Milwaukee later paid the boy's family a sum of $850,000 to settle the lawsuit over police handling of the situation that happened. And they should have like, got a lot more. Yeah. Even in the 80s. The officers both appealed their terminations, and in June of 1994, they were both Mm-mm. reinstated Mm-mm. Mm-mm. with back pay for the time no! they spent unemployed. Even though it was proven that they let this child go, they got I know. what on what ground? Oh, just an accident. Yeah, that's yeah, probably. I don't know. Oh I don't know how things work. It's all freaking red tape, bureaucracy, fucking government bullshit. I hate it. Such fucking bullshit. It is what it is. That's always, it still happens today, so can. Mm-hmm. After this close call, Dahmer acted quickly, calling in sick for work the next day before disposing of both Tony Hughes and Conorak's bodies in acid. Mm. He, once again, of course, kept their skulls as souvenirs. But can I just, where is he getting this acid from? Okay. Is it just, you can just go to the Walmart, be like, I need a thing of acid. I have no idea. And I've heard like in other documentaries and other podcasts and other sources that I read about this, nobody has a clear answer about where he was getting this acid from. Okay, and I don't, so I'm not, I'm not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> wondering. And, and I don't know if you can just walk into Walmart and get muriatic acid. I don't know. Maybe his dad had connections because he's a chemist. I I really don't know. Oh, maybe. Because that's how they did in Breaking Bad because he was a chemist. Yeah. So I don't know if that's how. But like, wouldn't his dad, I would hope, be like, why you need all this acid? I don't think Lionel would do that. (laughs) I don't think so either. I I really like Lionel and I, I don't think he would provide that. However, I know you love Lionel, and I don't want to crush your dreams, but I think he turned a blind eye to a lot of things that he probably should have been a little more attentive to when it came to Jeff, but that's just me. I guess, yeah. Uh, Many parents would, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they look the other way because they don't want to see their kid. They want to support their child, not... Well, and in Lionel's defense, I'm sure he wasn't like, oh, yeah, no, Jeff is totally, like, aciding bodies and eating them before. Like, no, that's totally what he's doing. Like, he, no one could have guessed that. No, nobody would think that. Even if, I think even with Lionel, if Lionel suspected someone was up with Jeff, his worst case scenario in his mind would never be what he was actually doing. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) So... After his brush with the law, Jeff decided it would be a good time to take a little vacation, if you will. And he headed over to Chicago. And on June 30th, 1991, Jeffrey would go to the Chicago Gay Pride Parade. Oh. So, fun weekend. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just like, what kind of victims is he trying to find? I know. Also in attendance that evening was a 20-year-old named Matt Turner. Oh, no. So, Matt was described by those who knew him as the life of the party, who made friends incredibly easily, and loved getting dressed up and taking pictures, which we can all, well, you can identify with. Yes, he sounds like my kind of guy. 
I cannot. I get dressed up and stay as far away from the camera as humanly possible. I know. Even though I try to drag you in. I know. He had a bubbly, outgoing personality, was adventurous, and had a zest for life. And this made Jeffrey's job of grooming his 14th victim all the more easier. Mm. Jeffrey approached Matt with the offer of money to take pictures, and he willingly jumped on a Greyhound bus with Dahmer and headed back to Milwaukee with him. Mm -hmm. Once back at Jeff's apartment, the same routine followed as per usual. Mm -hmm. And Matt's family and friends, they weren't immediately alarmed by his absence. Because of Matt's outgoing nature, they were used to him kind of taking off on different adventures without giving them notice of where he was going or what he was doing. But he always came home eventually. And this Mm -hmm. time, he would never return home. Oh, Jeremy Weinberger would be Jeff's next victim. So Jeff again had traveled to Chicago, meeting Jeremy, a 23-year-old customer service representative, at a bar called Carol's Speakeasy on July 6, 1991. The two struck up a conversation, and Jeffrey, of course, asked the young man to travel the 90 miles with him back to Milwaukee for a paid photo shoot. Now, Jeremy was known as sweet, trusting, if not a little naive, described by a lot of his Mm. friends. They said that. Perfect target. Yeah. And when he asked his friend that he was with that night, uh, if he thought it was a good idea, the friend basically said, like, he seems fine. And to have... A great night. Like, oh, oh, no. So Jeremy left with Dahmer, and Jeff actually seemed to be smitten with Jeremy, even spending a few days with him once back in Milwaukee. So they spent... Alive? Alive, yeah. Like, he spent oh. a few days with him, sightseeing and all that shit. Could this be a turning point, Jeffrey? But, of course, oh, eventually nope. <laughs> Jeremy would want to go home. And this was something that Jeff just... He couldn't deal with. Because, you know, like, he wants somebody to stay with him forever. Mm-hmm. He offered his new friend one last drink before he started to head on his way. No. And predict- predictably, this drink was laced with sleeping pills, and Jeremy was rendered unconscious. <sighs> Jeff would again try to create one of his zombies, but having failed before, he decided to switch things up this time. Okay, thankfully. Jesus. Instead of using acid, like he had it in the past... He instead injected boiling water into the uh, man's skull. I do not like that switch up. No. So, miraculously, Jeremy would awake, but unsatisfied with the fact that he wasn't zombified, Jeffrey would try again, drugging him for a second time and giving him a second dose of hot water. And, like, okay, so obviously we've never had our brain played with to know, like, what kind of nerves. Does that hurt? Is it, is there nerves up there? Or is it just the endings? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, how, does it hurt? I do not know the science of it. It, it, I'm imagining they're under a lot of drugs. They're very yeah. sedated. Like, the, the skull drilling obviously would hurt. But the brain tampering is what I need to know. Because I, I, these I, poor kids with the boiling wa- Oh, come on. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. And I wish I did. But I'm also glad I don't. Because yeah. I want to know how much yeah. pain they were in. And I don't want to know how people find out that answer. So I'm glad we don't know the answer to that. Yeah. So this time Jeremy would die from this procedure, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. and Jeffrey would dispose of Jeremy's remains in the same way as all the others, storing his decapitated head in his freezer. After Dahmer's crimes had become public, Jeremy's death would result in another tragedy, unfortunately. The friend who was with him that night in Chicago would commit suicide due to the overwhelming guilt he felt for giving him the thumbs up to go with Dahmer. And I was going to say, imagine how that friend felt. Oh, God. I don't know. And that's what I think a lot of these guys, they, they pretend to be remorseful for the crimes they committed. But I don't think they understand the far reaching impact of their crimes. So when Jeffrey Dahmer, like, feigns any kind of remorse for his victims, I think that he's he's playing that part of only showing remorse for the people he killed. He doesn't, and in a lot of cases, similar to Jeffrey Dahmer, they don't show remorse for those people that they've affected in a larger scale. Mm-hmm. They don't see that because they... They really can't even be remorseful for for those people they murdered. No. They can't see beyond their own nose, right? Yeah. 
It's just, it's absolutely yeah. devastating. It really is. So Dauber's next victim was a man named Oliver Lacey, and he was a 23-year-old father of a two-year-old child. Okay. He had recently moved to Milwaukee to be with his family and was planning on proposing to his girlfriend when he crossed paths with Jeffrey Dahmer on July 12, 1991. Oh, no. Now, Oliver seemed to have a lot going for him at the time of his disappearance. He was affectionately known as Birdie by his loved ones. Love that. He was an athlete and described as being an energetic lover of life. Hmm. Now... No one really knows why Oliver agreed to accompany Jeffrey back to his apartment that day, but nonetheless, he did, meaning the same fate as those who made the same unfortunate choice before him. Jeffrey stored Oliver's head in the refrigerator next to a box of baking soda in the hopes that that would cover up the smell of decomposing flesh emanating from his apartment. No, Jeffrey. A solid box of baking soda. It can do wonders, but not that much. Sometimes it can, but sometimes, like, I've got a rotten orange in there and you can still smell it. <laughs> like, fuck off, Jeffrey. You're an idiot. <laughs> he kept Oliver's heart in the freezer wrapped in cellophane with the intention of eating it later. Oh, Ooh, yikes. <laughs> he also kept his entire skeleton. Oh. Probably like- for that altar he was designing. Like, after it was... Uh, no, I can't even think about it. Well, he was designing that altar, right? So... Yeah, but I just want to know, like, the skeleton. So, like, the meaty flesh, did he... Dissolve it. Cut that off? Okay, it was dissolved. Yeah. It, but I thought the bones would dissolve, too. I don't know the science, Rachel. I don't know I either. Wish That's I did. What I, oh, I don't I like it. I should have looked into it. I just wanted no. to tell you a story. No. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like any of it, and I don't like that I have these questions. So, Oliver would be the first of Jeffrey's victims to be positively identified, as he had the most remains stored in the apartment. Okay. So, Jeffrey's 17th and final victim was a man named Joseph Braidhoff. Joseph was a recently divorced father of three. Hmm. He had recently relocated to Milwaukee to find work so that he could support his children. His brother's trying to do the right thing. His brother also lived in Milwaukee, and he was looking forward to spending time with his family while he was there. July 19th of 1991 was a rainy day when Jeffrey met Joseph at a bus stop. He offered him the customary $50 for nude photos, and Joseph, thinking that he could use the cash, willingly went with him to his apartment. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's at $50. After... Playing out all of his vicious rituals on Joseph, Jeffrey would end up keeping the body for days, only decomposing of the body once it became infested with maggots. Oh, get out of here. Jeffrey cleaned out the head and again stored it in his freezer. He would... How big is this freezer? There's got to be at least 10 skulls in there. And like, I can't even fit three TV dinners. Like, what the fuck? So he had like his regular like apartment freezer that was on the top of his fridge and then he had like a chest a small chest freezer okay. small chest freezer okay he would put joseph's torso into a big blue drum filled with acid joining two other victims that were already in there oh. so like i said joseph was jeffrey's last murder victim but before this killer was finally brought down one more man would be lured back to jeffrey's house of horrors oh. Tracy Edwards was no stranger to the challenges life could throw at you, and at 31, while enjoying a night out with two friends, he was approached by Dahmer on the street. Mm-hmm. Tracy, like Braidhoff, was also heterosexual, but being down on his luck was vulnerable to Dahmer's tricks. Jeff introduced himself and offered Edwards and his two friends money to pose for a photo shoot, this time offering $100 instead of the usual 50 so he's really oh, up in the ante. Shit. These two friends weren't interested in being photographed, but Jeff still invited them all back to his place for a party. He convinced Tracy to take a cab with him so they could get the photos out of the way, while his other two friends would travel on their own later in the night. We're just going to take our pictures in this cab? Like, don't... No, so he was like, let's go back now. Your friends can come later. Oh, gotcha. You can come with me now, and we'll go get this photo shoot underway before they come. Oh, no. So he, of course, gave the friends the wrong address. Yeah. 
Tracy would say that at this point, he was not frightened or made to feel at all uncomfortable by Jeffrey. He was friendly, polite, and by what Tracy could tell, he was totally harmless. <laughs> so when the two arrived at the Oxford Street apartments, Tracy was hit with the smell of one million dead things. Yeah. Ew. Oh, God. Imagine the smell. Yeah. So immediately he was like, what is that? You know, so the stench was so overwhelming to him, but... And I'm, was, I'm brought back. Where are the neighbors? Yeah. If my neighbor is sitting there creating that kind of a stench, like, I'm complaining. Well, look at us when your neighbors cook breakfast and we're all like... Yeah, but that's not delicious. Yeah. I know, but, like, look at how strong that is. Someone's cooking all- right now and it smells fucking divine. Yes. So you can imagine, in your building specifically, because we know how strong the smells are there... You know. Yeah. When you know, you know. And when you, you know, know, you know. Yeah. Tracy also noted in his testimony later that the apartment appeared to be either hardly lived in or someone was fixing to move out very soon because it did mm-hmm. not look very inhabited. Mm-hmm. Also, Jeff had put on The Exorcist 3 for the two of them to watch. Stop it. Here, why don't you come over and watch my favorite movie, The Exorcist 3? Says no one ever. (laughs) I wrote that I find this so strange and obscure. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) As soon as the pair arrived at the apartment, Dahmer immediately began pressuring Tracy to disrobe and get the photo shoot started. Mm -hmm. But Tracy was apprehensive and not sure if he actually wanted to go through with it. He was all like... $100. Hundred dollars, mm. and it stinks in here, babe. Like <laughs> it's not good. Do you got a cat? Because it stinks in here. <laughs> so then Dahmer offered Tracy a rum and coke and a beer, but Tracy wasn't a big drinker, so he just sipped the drinks, which for Jeffrey's purposes wasn't going to work for him for obvious reasons. <laughs> you know, uh, Tracy's survival skills are really coming like up to par here. Yeah. So Tracy started to realize pretty quickly that something was off. And after taking a better look around the apartment, he started to notice some strange things that Mm. Jeff had laying around. Red like Like large blue barrels and boxes of acid. Just everywhere. Excuse (laughs) me, sir. What is this uh, big blue barrel and acid for? Again, to bring back the Breaking Bad references, he's lucky that show wasn't around back then. I was I was just going to say, because I stopped myself, because I'm like, wait, no, it's the 8th, the 90s. He wouldn't have known the Breaking Bad. But thankfully, this generation would be like, hold on a second. I've hold seen up. that before. Anyways, <laughs> in his testimony at Jeff's trial, Tracy stated that he could tell Jeff was starting to get more and more anxious. Like, he knew he was getting ready to go. So, like, Jeff knew that Tracy was getting ready to leave. Yeah. When Tracy got up to leave, Dahmer reached over and actually, like, put a handcuff on Tracy's wrist. And thankfully, Tracy was able to fight him off, preventing him from getting a second handcuff on. Oh, good. But then Jeffrey produced a very large knife, and Tracy thought, I better start complying with him, or he might kill me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And he didn't actually try to stab Tracy at this point. Instead, he just laid his head right on his chest and told him he was going to eat his heart. Wait. Hold on. So Tracy is not A, drunk, or B, drugged. No. And Jeffrey just says, let me hear your heartbeat, young thing. And I'm going to eat it. His head on his chest. And says, I'm going to eat your heart. Basically, yes. As as Tracy is looking around the room at these barrels and acid and the smell and hearing Jeffrey say, I'm going to eat your heart. Yeah. I, mm-mm, no, catch me later, I'm out. Bye. Well, Tracy took this as his sign to... Say, my <laughs> Uber's, my Uber, my Uber's out back, and um, I'm gonna get nope the fuck out of here. Um, and he and he dipped. Okay, he punched him. He punched him first. He knocked okay. him out. He punched him first. And He's then he like, dipped. you know what's not gonna happen? This whole thing. Yeah. 
Boom out. Yeah. So he began running for his life down the street when he spotted mm-hmm. two police officers by the name of Officer. I hope Rudy. it wasn't Balsack and Gibberish because nope. they were fucking useless. It wasn't. It was uh, two officers by the name of Muller and Routh who were working the night shift that night. And now, at first, because of the handcuff dangling from Tracy's wrist, the officers thought that maybe he had escaped arrest and was Take running. Me. Take me, officer. Take me into custody. I don't even give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. But after trying to unlock his handcuff, they realized that they were police issue. These are a sex toy. What's with the fuzz around them? Yeah. Well, and then Tracy began telling them the story of what had just happened to him. So he was able, because he wasn't drunk, because he was just sipping the drinks, he mm-hmm. had led the officers right to Jeffrey's apartment. And surprisingly, Jeffrey answered the door when they knocked and let them in. <laughs> Yeah. Knock, 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 5 just coming to for a daily check. Wow. He's like, no problem, come on in. M- mind the smell, the barrels, and the acid. Nothing no. to see here. But remember all the times that Jeffrey has been able to talk himself out of trouble with the police I and otherwise, so. right? So. I guess so. This fuck is kicking in. <laughs> I know. At first, nothing looked amiss, and Dahmer readily admitted that the handcuffs were his. And the police officer's initial thought was that they were dealing with another domestic dispute. However, after some poking around, one of the officers noticed a large knife that had traces of blood on it. Mm -hmm. Along with several other very disturbing Polaroids. Now, Uh, yeah. So these Polaroids depicted men in explicit poses and in the process of being murdered and in states of dismemberment. I was going to say, aren't these Polaroids of dead men? Like, disturbing Polaroids is slightly less descriptive than what you would call it. They weren't exactly sure what they were looking at, but then when they started to realize that in the background they could tell that it was the same apartment they were standing in, they realized that they had stumbled onto something way bigger than they had assumed was just a lover's quarrel. (sighs) And they're probably like, God damn it, it's like half an hour until I'm supposed to clock out. Like, yeah. really? Well, and that's where I'm ending this tonight. What? Yeah. <laughs> God. So there is so much more to come after this. And it is just as fucked up as the rest of the story. So, well, I'm glad we don't have to wait a whole week because I cannot handle that. And and, Tra- and Tracy Edwards actually survives. Obviously, he oh, goodness he was the one that he's the unlikely hero that brought Jeffrey Dahmer down. So wow, <laughs> yeah, I love so this you, is Tracy. where we're, this is where we're ending tonight. And don't worry, like I said, part three will be coming up in just a couple of days, so you guys will be hopefully Thanks. satisfied with the end. <laughs> yes. I need cliffhanger. Hello. And closure. Yeah. So, (laughs) uh, but yeah, so that's where we're going. And uh, tune in in two more days for part three. (laughs) I will be here. (laughs) Yes. All right. If you want to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Story Crime Pod. And send me an email at storycrimepod at gmail.com. Okay. (laughs) Rachel, no nightmares tonight. I'm going to try. Like, I, okay. That was an abrupt (laughs) ending. And I hope you can still eat dinner. I'm sorry if I disrupted your appetite. Okay. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you for listening and see you next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye.